Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization working to support the most vulnerable of all the victims, the children. Voices of Children is a Ukrainian organization dedicated to ensuring no child is left to deal with the trauma of war alone. Working at the front lines of the Russian invasion in villages along the Donetsk and Luhansk region, Voices of Children provides a variety of services like art therapy, video storytelling, mobile youth psychologists, and more. If you'd like to help or learn more about Voices of Children and their critical work, please visit voices.org.ua/en. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good, hello, good uh, afternoon, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club event. I'm Olga Olaker. I direct the Europe and Central Asia program at the International Crisis Group. And I want to begin by thanking the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting today's Good Lit event. And now I am delighted to introduce Ambassador Marie Ivanovich, who was the last U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and is now the author of a book, Lessons from the Edge. And as we begin this conversation, it is just over a month since Russian troops embarked upon a full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. According to Reuters, some 10 million people have been displaced, about four outside of Ukraine and the rest inside of it. There are tens of thousands of confirmed deaths as this war continues, and we don't know how many deaths there are. It's, it's impossible to count, and these numbers are poised to continue to grow. It's truly a cataclysmic historical moment. Russia's war on Ukraine is devastating for that country, but it also has wrought tremendous changes for Russia itself, and it's poised potentially to rewrite the future of European and perhaps even global security. But we also come back to the fact that it's a war tearing apart the country of Ukraine in the very center of Europe. And that's why I am so incredibly pleased to be having this conversation today with Ambassador Ivanovich. She is a pioneering diplomat whose last assignment as ambassador was representing the United States in Ukraine. And she was our country's last fully-fledged ambassador to that country. And it's where I was privileged to meet her a few years ago. Um, ambassador Ivanovich's new book, Lessons from the Edge, recounts her rise through the foreign service ranks, her experiences in some of the places she served, including as ambassador to Kyrgyzstan, Armenia, and Ukraine, and the shocking attack on her from America's own leadership in 2019, which led to her departure from the State Department and its loss of a top diplomat. So I want to talk about all of this, and I also want to talk about Ukraine, and it's an awful lot to cover in an hour. So please submit your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we'll try to get to them as well, and we're going to get started. So, Ambassador, welcome, and let me start off by asking you, in this terrifying and critical moment in which the United States and its allies are trying to find a path forward that supports Ukraine but avoids the direct involvement that could lead to an unfathomable escalation, based on your experience in Ukraine, in the Foreign Service, in, in Washington, are they getting it right? And what, if anything, would you be doing differently? What would you be advising the Biden team to do differently if you had the opportunity? Yeah, well, I actually do think the administration is getting it mostly right. I think that um, 
as you have pointed out, it is a very narrow lane between supporting Ukraine, even saving Ukraine, um, and uh, avoiding a wider war, uh, the kind of escalation that nobody wants to see. Um, so I think it's important that we keep on looking at what we can do to help Ukraine, uh, that we not take uh, items off the table, because as we've seen, assistance that would have been inconceivable six months ago, even a month ago, is now being provided. And so let's not take items off the table. Let's focus on what we can do and let's keep on providing assistance to Ukraine. And of course, now I'm mostly talking about um, security assistance, um, but across the board as well. And uh, on the security assistance side, we need to keep on backfilling because what we're seeing is there is some success with the Ukrainian military. Um, they are using their training. They are, they've got unbelievable leadership, starting with President Zelensky, who is, you know, the greatest communicator since Winston Churchill. And, um, but, you know, down through the ranks, I mean, the military leadership is extraordinary and they have reformed their military so that they do have NCOs who are leading uh, forces and leading them well. And then, of course, there's the will of the Ukrainian people. So there is a lot of success on the battlefield, and they're using the equipment that we and others are sending, and we need to keep on backfilling that so that we can maximize the possibility for success. Um, I would say one thing, which is that we look at these issues, as of course, Olga, you well know, um, through our own cultural lens, our American lens. And so when we look at things and we think we are being restrained and uh, not provoking a greater escalation and so forth, that is our definition of what is non-escalatory. And it's not at all clear that other countries, and certainly Russia and Vladimir Putin, agree with that definition. And um, I, I also think that Vladimir Putin is a man who only understands strength. He is a bully. He has always been a bully. And uh, he only stops when he is stopped. And so when we are, you know, restrained, I'm not sure he understands that in the same way that we mean it, uh, which is that we are strong and we can... <laughs> We, we can do more, but we are not because we don't want to escalate. I think he may sometimes understand that as weakness. And so this is the very narrow lane that the Biden administration and other, other world leaders are trying to navigate right now, where to do too much could perhaps um, send us into a much wider war, which nobody wants, and to not respond sufficiently as I believe we did not respond sufficiently in Georgia in uh, 2008, when Putin you know, grabbed hunks of Georgia, in Ukraine in 2014, when he illegally annexed Crimea and initiated the first um, or the beginning of the war in the Donbass. Um, and now here we are in 2022 with yet another war of aggression, another war of choice by Russia. So um, not acting sufficiently robustly also, um, you know, bears risk. So, you know, navigating that lane is, 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 is very difficult. I mean, the military calls it a wicked problem because they're just so hard to solve and, you know, they're just very difficult. I mean, it is, it's just, it's a tremendous challenge to America's diplomats, to Ukraine's 
government and its diplomats and its military forces and its civilians. And, you know, it's really amazing what they've been able to do over the last month. So I don't know about you. I expected the Ukrainians to resist, but I didn't expect them to be as successful about it. And I'm wondering what, if anything, has surprised you the most over the last month and a half of watching events unfold? You know, I'm going to give you the answer that you probably already know. I mean, it's an obvious answer, but um, but it it is my answer, which is that um, the the three huge miscalculations that Putin and I guess uh, those around him made. The first that um, you know Ukraine is not really a country and does not deserve to exist, and that the, Rus- the Ukrainians are just little Russians, as, as, as they are called in, in, in Russia, and aren't a distinct and separate people with their own language, their own culture, their own traditions, their own long history, a history that also includes fiercely resisting Russian attacks over the centuries. I mean, on the one hand, um, this is new, um, perhaps to us, but on the other hand, it is very, very old. And um, that his reading of history is so different from, frankly, what the facts would indicate is is, is troubling. Um, but it let, you know, that understanding, that belief system led him to a huge miscalculation that he would somehow be welcomed um, as a conqueror. In fact, I think the latest news is that uh, Ukrainian forces have found dress uniforms for generals and others for that victory parade that they were going to have on day two or three when they marched into, into Kiev. I mean, you know, over a month in, that just seems ridiculous. Um, as I think anybody who knows Ukraine would know that it was ridiculous. The, um, you know, most favorite poet of, um, of Ukraine, Taras Shevchenko, has this very famous line, um, fight on and you will prevail. And that embodies the Ukrainian spirit. And I think that's what you're seeing in President Zelensky when he is out there communicating and uniting his country and inspiring them and inspiring the world. And it's what you see. And and what I would say is he reflects the spirit of the Ukrainian people where they are fighting, whether they are, you know, kids or grandmas, you know, making Molotov cocktails or out there in the um, Ukrainian territorial defense uh, units or driving an ambulance whatever they are doing, they are bound together as a nation to resist, you know, this, this war of aggression, this occupation, which, you know, is um, a huge miscalculation on Putin's part. The second miscalculation I think that he made was um, that his own military would be so strong that um, it could, you know, even if there was some resistance, it could prevail. And I think what we've seen is just the opposite. It doesn't mean uh, that the Russian army is done by any stretch of the imagination, um, but uh, it, the Russian military clearly, he overestimated their capabilities. They themselves overestimated their capabilities, um, not, not just on the military front, the tactical front, um, but also on things like logistics, which are hard to get right. Um, but nevertheless, as Napoleon said, an army fights on its stomach. And if you don't have food, you don't have gasoline and diesel and, you know, all the things that people need to fight, it's, it's, the military is not going to work. And now what we're hearing is that troops are withdrawing to Belarus. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, perhaps it's to regroup, 
and to come back to fight another day. Um, but the Russian military, which when I was in the government, we would always remind each other the Russian military is, you know, not 10 feet tall. Um, and I think now we um, realize that it's not 10 feet tall. It doesn't mean, though, that the Russian military isn't really dangerous um, because they may not be able to fight the Ukrainian military, um, but they can do what they're doing in Mariupol and countless other cities of just hurling hellfire at innocent civilians and causing them to suffer and hoping that that will break the will of the Ukrainian people. So far, they have miscalculated on that. Uh, and um, I, I think that, honestly, I, I don't see a path to the Russians being able to be ultimately, and I'm talking in the long, long term, victorious in Ukraine, because even if they somehow prevail militarily, I don't think the Ukrainian people will tolerate that. Um, I think they will. there will be a guerrilla war. I think there will be, you know, civil disobedience. Um, and it will be very, very ugly. I would not want to be a Russian soldier going into a Ukrainian cafe. I'd be worried about what I was being served. And, you know, just, you know, um, put that out there about getting into a car. You know, there are many, many ways that a civilian population can make its will known. And I think that a Russian occupation, if it actually came to that, would be um, hugely expensive mortgaging Russia's future, all of that money that should go to the development of the Russian people and the Russian economy, um, but it would be spent on an expensive occupation. So they would be spent, they would be paying in, in treasure, but also I think in blood. And the third miscalculation that I think that uh, Vladimir Putin made was um, in underestimating the West. I think he looked at uh, the United States, he looked at the divisions in the U.S., he looked at the withdrawal in Afghanistan, um, he looked at Europe, um, England, obviously, with lots of challenges there, elections coming up for Macron in France, a new and untried uh, chancellor in Germany. And I think he thought, you know, this is my moment to go in there and recreate, you know, depending on your theories, whether it's the Russian Empire, the, so the, the Soviet Union, um, securing my legacy and maybe getting a leg up on the 2024 presidential elections in Russia. So I think there are, I mean, there were a lot of surprises for me. I mean, there are others as well, but those are the three major ones that were really strategic, actually, that um, have impacted the war. No, I think, I think that's a great analysis. So I'm going to ask you a question that I hate when people ask it of me because I don't have a good answer, but I'm still going to ask it, which is, okay, we're pretty sure that it doesn't end the way Vladimir Putin thought it was going to end. How could it end? Yeah, I don't like that question either. Because it's, it's, you know, none of us has a crystal ball. And I think... The other part of this is, at least for me, um, now being out of government, not having access <clears throat> to, um, you know, a lot of reports, intelligence, and so forth, um, it's not clear to me, so I could be wrong, but it's not clear to me that anybody really has insight into where Vladimir Putin's head is. And um, I would say, <laughs> I also wonder whether those around him <laughs> know where his head is. And where his heart is, uh, if he has a heart, and where he wants to go. 
And I'm not sure he exactly knows either. I mean, there are sort of idle hints and threats about, um, you know, the fact that Russia is a nuclear power and so forth, which, um, you know, is that, is that a threat actually? Is that a really serious thing? Or is he just playing with our heads? Because, um, you know, on one level, at least it's working. I mean, that's gotten our attention as it should. I mean, this is a serious concern. Um, there's also the CW issue. So I guess I, I guess there are two ways. Um, well, there are a couple of different ways that this could go. But, um, you know, is Vladimir Putin, you know, going, I, I hate this word too, as, as well as this question, um, but the famous off-ramp, you know, is there a way that um, Putin could um, find a way to move off of um, the military instrument that would, um, you know, preserve some of his pride, et cetera, um, so that we could stop the war and stop the killing and find a way to at least a ceasefire, if not a lasting peace. But of course, the ultimate objective would be a lasting and a fair um, peace. Um, so that's one question. Can, can we do that? Or do we think that, you know, the wounded animal uh, in his little cave, um, because it does appear that he doesn't have a lot of social or even work interaction, um, is he going to take another tact and kind of um, up the ante to some of the things we've, we, we've just mentioned? Um, that's kind of frightening. So I, you know, what I'm hoping as a diplomat, because diplomats are always hopeful, and you have to be, is that, um, you know, the negotiations that the Russians and the Ukrainians have been carrying on, and tomorrow there's going to be another round of uh, negotiations, and Zelensky has put out, um, you know, preliminary ideas about what he might be willing to accept. And um, let's see uh, whether that might um, move us forward in, in some way. But I think the crucial thing to remember about um, negotiations in Ukraine, between Ukraine and Russia, is that while Russia is not a democracy and it only really matters what one man thinks, about an ultimate solution. Ukraine is, for all of its faults, Ukraine is a democracy. And the Ukrainian people need to feel good about whatever that diplomatic solution is, or it will not hold. And I think Zelensky himself has recognized this by saying that it would have to be, that there would have to be a referendum to approve this. Um, and so that makes it, on the one hand, <clears throat> you know, the power of the people, because if they agree, there will be a lasting peace in Ukraine. Um, but it also makes it much more tricky to negotiate because, again, you're, um, you know, perhaps it, um, it it certainly impacts how you can negotiate and what the uh, elements of the negotiation are. Thank you. I think that, that's an amazing answer. I want to come back to Ukraine, but first I want to spend some time talking about you and your own experience and your own career, because in your book, you talk about, you talk about all of this and, you know, your, your family, like mine, like many families ended up in the United States after having fled oppression and violence in our case in Eastern Europe and many people's cases all over the world. And then you spend much of your career navigating corruption and authoritarian creep and backdoor dealings in various former Soviet countries and Africa, all on behalf of the United States. 
But you ended up facing something similar in America when it was Ukrainian special interests aligned with American special interests, I guess, that decided to work against you. And where does where do you think that leaves you as as an American? Um, has it made you rethink uh, these missions that we sometimes send our diplomats on to try to help countries reform? Um, you know, one, one of my friends likes to say regime change begins at home, right? Democracy promotion begins at home, that we need to get our own house in order. Has it made you, has it, has it changed any of your views, this, you know, this harrowing experience you had to go through? Yeah, so I've thought a lot about this, um, but it actually hasn't changed my mind about what we do overseas. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but, um, you know, it was shocking to me uh, that you know, the president of the United States would be willing to, you know, trade his office, um, not trade his office, but use his position in order to get a favor um, from President Zelensky, um, you know, a personal favor, a political favor in terms of getting, you know, investigations into the Biden family. Um, I mean, Americans uh, elect their president and they should have, they are absolutely entitled to believe that the president of the United States is working in the interests of all of the people, not just himself. And it was quite clear in that phone conversation that he was not doing that. And so that was, that was, you know, shocking to me. And it, you know, it weakened the United States because uh, it wasn't just Americans who saw the transcript of that phone call. It was Vladimir Putin. It was every t dictator out there. It was bad actors, both in the United States and overseas, that all of a sudden, or if not all of a sudden, but understood um, that they, you know, if they were able, that they could make a deal, um, basically, with the um, Trump administration um, about whatever their personal interests were, if they offered something um, in exchange. And that is a shocking thing. I'd seen that overseas. I'd never expected to see that in the United States. Um, I mean, I think all of us have had differences with administrations over the years, but I at least never thought that those policy differences were coming from a place uh, where people were, you know, navigating their personal, um, personal interests. So, you know, and then, of course, I hope it culminated. I hope it's the end um, in uh, the um, unwillingness to accept the outcome of a free and fair election. And, um, and then the conspiracy that followed on various different levels uh, that culminated in the January 6th insurrection. Again, I've seen elements of that overseas, um, but this was not something I ever expected to see in the United States. And it made me realize, um, as your friend said, that we need to tend and defend our own democracy if we want it to endure. And that means all of us. Um, and we can do different things. You know, it doesn't mean um, that you have to run for office or something like that. I mean, it's working in your communities. It's, you know, trying to, to knit the fabric of our communities together so that we can come together even when we disagree and move our country forward. Because there are big issues out there that wherever you are on the political spectrum, you care about. And how do we come together to deal with those issues? And, um, and I think we've got some challenges there, and we need to work on that. But going to the overseas part, um, I would say that 
you know, my experience as a diplomat has been that, you know, we have this rocking economy <laughs> and, um, you know, that huge American economy has been, you know, uh, a, a huge part of our influence around the world. We have the best military in the world. And that too has been, you know, has provided incredible leverage for us around the world. But when people think about America overseas, um, they think about our ideals and our values. You know, Ronald Reagan's shining city on the hill. You know, people kind of sometimes mock that phrase, but I actually think that's what people think about. And when people want to immigrate to the United States, that's what they're thinking about. It's what my parents thought about when they came to the United States. They were, you know, leaving autocratic regimes and they wanted a place where they could bring up their children in freedom and live their lives safely and worship as they wanted and, you know, speak <laughs> their minds and everything else. And so, and I, I think that's still true, um, not only for immigrants to the United States today, but people around the world. I mean, the messages that I got on January 6th and thereafter from friends all over the world was, oh my God, what's happening? Um, but it was also, you know, if you don't get this in order, what's going to happen to us? Because we are still the example. We are still, you know, for many, um, the leader in the world. And so coming to, do I think that um, we should not be, shall I say, um, you know, talking about democracy, et cetera, since, since it's clear that our own democracy is not perfect. Um, and I, I think we should, because first of all, there is no perfect democracy. And, and you know, that, that old <laughs> saying of um, democracy is the worst uh, system in the world, except for all the others. <laughs> I mean, I think that's true. And I think it's also true that one has to constantly tend a democracy and keep it strong and keep it create, you know, keep it thriving and keep it flexible so that it serves the needs of the people um, without undermining our values. Um, but I think that when you do the overseas piece, the reason that we um, help other countries um, move forward in their democracies or with their market economies is not because we're imposing it on them. Usually the governments ask or the people ask, civil society activists and others ask for our help. And those programs are all agreed, you know, with the government, with um, various organizations and so forth. This is not something that we come in and impose and say, you need to do X. Um, this is a negotiated kind of a, um, um, an understanding of how, how we can help them in their own quest to move forward on democracy. And the reason that we think that this is a positive thing is we do think it's the best system, except for all the rest. Or the, we, we do think it's the best system. And um, other democracies make for the best partners for the United States. They are more stable overall, generally. They are um, you know, more prosperous. They are more secure. Those make for better partners for the United States, for our citizens, for our businesses, for our government. And so that's, that's, that's a good thing. And the last thing I would say, you know, to those, I mean, you didn't ask this, but maybe you kind of implied it in the question, um, but um, that, you know, who are we to talk about democracy when we have challenges of our own? And I think, I, I think the answer to that question is that we don't, we don't 
we don't help other countries and talk about democracy because we are perfect. We do this because we think it's important and we think that it will help those countries and help our relationships. And, and I think that's an important distinction that we need to make. And sometimes perhaps we are not sufficiently um, humble, shall I say, when we, um, when we talk about these things. You know, we talk about the shining city on the hill and um, are very proud of our own democracy, as I think we often can be. Um, but I think we also need to be humble and to listen. And, you know, perhaps there are some lessons that we can learn from our friends overseas along these lines. Thank you. So I want to kind of follow up on this a little bit as part of building a better America and improving our democracy. You built your career in the Foreign Service and at times it served you well and at times it served you less well. What would you do to build a better Foreign Service? Yeah, well, I think I think there's a lot of things that need to be done, honestly. Uh, the, um, you know, famously, the military after Vietnam really took a hard look at itself and reformed. And that was enshrined in legislation, that reform. And um, after 9-11, the intel services also took a hard look at why we had all those stovepipes that, you know, one person knew one thing, another person knew another thing, but we couldn't put it all together. Um, so they also reformed. I'm not saying that either of those reforms were perfect, um, but I think it takes a crisis to sort of review how we do business and come up with... Um, with reforms, because it, you know, it's, it's just hard to reform. Nobody wants to do it unless they're forced to it. And um, in both cases, those communities um, went forward with those reforms. I think we are just about at the point where we need to do the same for the Foreign Service and really kind of think about how we redefine our mission, um, think about our mandate, think about how we can better resource uh, the State Department. Um, and, you know, the, you know, USAID, the community of agencies that do foreign um, foreign affairs uh, and um, and enshrine that in legislation. I think that's uh, really important to do right now because in some ways the Foreign Service is still kind of a 1950s organization, which was the last time uh, we reformed where it was, you know, there was a kind of a nuclear family and the Foreign Service officer was generally a male uh, with a, a spouse who supported, you know, not only took care of the family, but supported that career. In fact, until I think the late 1960s, it might even be later than that, even though um, the spouse, almost always a woman, was not an employee, the spouse got an evaluation from her husband's boss as well. You know, how, how well did the dinner parties go? <laughs> Were they sufficiently, <laughs> I don't know, was, was the chicken well done? <laughs> Whatever it was. I, mean, I don't know what it was, but it, it, it's kind of shocking. And also, until 1972, if you were a, um, a, a female foreign service officer, if you got married, you would have to resign. Uh, so um, that mercifully changed, but um, both of those things actually changed. But there's a lot about the way we do our business, um, both on the personnel side, um, as well as on you know how how we do our business that needs a hard look because it's now 2022 and we need to be nimble and we need to be um, flexible. Uh, and I think we need to give our line officers a lot more room to do what they need to do in order for us to be as effective as, as we can be. Um, I mean, I have a lot more thoughts on this, but I'll, I'll stop there. 
No, and I think it's really important. I think listening to people with your experience is one of the very key ways that uh, any organization, right, can can look to reform. Um, so over your career, you've served in a number of countries where autocracy was pretty well entrenched. And among those countries was Russia, where you served in the late 1980s, when it was pretty entrenched. And then the early 1990s, when things seemed to be changing, but it was among the kind of the more term, turbulent uh, periods for Russia. And right now is another, I mean, just a period of intense change for Russia. And one of the things we hear is these calls, including in Ukraine, for the Russians to rise up, right? Ukrainians will say, we overthrew our government, why can't you overthrow yours? But then what we also see is arrests, uh, and we see a huge exodus of Russians from their country. And we remember the last R Russian revolution, which didn't necessarily lead to all of the best results. So, you know, I asked you what happens next in Ukraine. I'm not going to ask you what happens next in Russia, but I will ask you, what do you think is and isn't possible in Russia? What is and isn't possible in Russia? How would you bound uh, the possibilities? Yeah, I mean, right now, you know, right, right now, uh, I have to say, I'm, I'm an optimist um, by by nature. <laughs> At least the American part of me is very optimistic. Sometimes the Slavic part is not so optimistic um, because I think the Slavs invented pessimism, and. On Russia right now, I have to say, um, I'm not seeing great possibilities. Uh, I think that, um, you know, if part of what Putin wanted to do was to recreate the Soviet empire, he's doing a fine job of it in Russia. Uh, not only, um, you know, with the, the long lines for cash and for food and um, some products, some food products now being rationed again with coupons and stuff. Um, and, you know, kind of the list goes on on the financial side. But um, but what you're talking about, which is the repression, that, um, you know, it just seems like every day there is another blow. And so, you know, it seemed to start, uh, I, I mean, it's been coming over the last 22 years. I mean, first he neutered the oligarchs where, um, you know, they look like they're so powerful, but at least in my opinion, they're just the money launderers and they are all in on the kleptocratic regime. And, um, you know, then he went after the opposition, the independent media, civil society activists, and now he's going after everybody, uh, including, um, you know, not only young people and old people who are just saying, we don't want a war in Ukraine and carting them off to jail, um, but he's, um, you know, shut down the last independent newspapers. I think Novaya Gazeta, the editor of... Uh, which won the Nobel Peace Prize in December. Um, he has now suspended his um, his newspaper because he hopes that he can at least save save it if he suspends it for the duration of, of this war. Um, but, you know, the other, at the beginning of the war, um, Putin declared that using certain terms, including the word war, <laughs> was illegal, punishable by 15 years in prison. And, you know, the list just goes on. And I think every day we are going to see something new. Um, you, Russians can still, Russians with access to internet and, um, 
you know, who are relatively sophisticated can still get some news. Um, but, you know, I think that is, I think the portals are going to get narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And so in that respect, he too has created, recreated um, at least part of the Soviet Union. And you also mentioned uh, the many people who have fled Russia. Um, I think over 200,000 to date, uh, the number might even be higher now. And, you know, this is an incredible brain drain. I mean, these are the, the Russia is, um, just to backtrack for a moment, Russia, in my opinion, is, is, is a rather divided country where you have um, elites in the cities who have um, gone to universities, access to internet, uh, have foreign friends, have traveled abroad, maybe who've been educated abroad, um, who, you know, have various ways of, um, you know, finding out things and knowing about things. And then there are people, you know, in the countryside who, um, you know, aren't, aren't nearly as privileged are, um, and are getting all of their news from Channel One, the, 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 state, um, the state broadcaster. It's all Putin's propaganda. And, you know, they're, you know, as we understand it anyway, they're believing what he says that, you know, Ukraine was threatening Russia or, you know, the U.S. behind Ukraine and NATO behind Ukraine was threatening Russia. And so there is a divided country there. And so it's very hard to navigate. And I think from Putin's point of view, if those 200,000 leave, so what if they're educated? So what if they're going to advance the economy? They are a threat to the regime. Um, and then finally, with this very long, long answer, I would just say that uh, I think it was now two weeks ago, there was an absolutely deranged speech uh, from Putin where he talked about um, the threat coming from fifth columnists in, uh, in Russia and how every Russian knows who is a traitor and knows who, who is, you know, really being, you know, run by, uh, by foreign countries and so forth. I mean, it was the language of fascism. And it was, I think, a dog whistle to some really bad actors in, in, in Russia. And so, yeah, I'm not hopeful in the short term for Russia. No, I think it's, it's, hard, to, it's, it's hard to see an easy way out of this. And uh, it's, um, on the other hand, we did not expect uh, what happened in, uh, when the Soviet Union uh, dissolved to happen when it did. So you Absolutely. never know, right? You never know when when things might change. Yeah, well, transitional change. I mean, you know, until it happens, you know, whether it's a revolution or something else, I mean, it seems impossible. And then in retrospect, it's it's inevitable. I think that's what political scientists say. And there's truth to that. I mean, you know, having served overseas where you, you, you knew there was dissatisfaction, but you just didn't see it coming in quite the way it came about. And I think that's true, especially now, with social media, where um, the organizers are also a little bit disaggregated, and they may not actually realize that oh, oh, it's happening! It's happening now. Um, so it's it's hard to predict these things. So you've been the representative of the United States abroad for your entire career, and you've you've done it in Europe, you've done it in the global South. And one of the things that I've noticed and have been talking to people about is people outside of Europe, outside of the United States and Canada, looking at the war, and they say, yes, it's terrible that Russia is violating Ukrainian sovereignty. It's terrible that civilians are dying and fleeing. But what about Yemen? What about Afghanistan? Uh, what about Somalia? Why do Westerners only care about suffering if it's white people suffering? How would you respond to that? Well, the first thing I would say is... Um, you know, wherever there is 
war and disaster and crisis, all of us should be concerned and, um, you know, working hard on it. In the first case in prevention, I mean, one of the things I, 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 I always talk about is, um, you know, Secretary of State Schultz, Ronald Reagan's uh, Secretary of State, where he would talk about diplomacy as tending the garden. And, um, you know, you're always out there just like you are in a garden, just like you are in any relationship where you are picking out the weeds and fertilizing the beautiful roses and making sure every day in a little way that things are going in the right direction. Because if you have this massive overgrown garden, it's awfully hard to hack through that and get to a peace settlement or whatever, whatever needs to happen. So I think the first thing is prevention. And we need to have eyes on and hands on. Um, not just the U.S., but um, all of us working together um, because we are in such an interconnected global environment that what happens in one place inevitably in crazy ways impacts other places. And so it's in our mutual interests for, um, you know, for things to to be progressing in, in a positive way. So the first thing I would say is I absolutely agree. We need to pay attention to Yemen. We need to pay attention to Somalia and, you know, the other countries that you cited and the many others that are, you know, I mean, in, in, in the part of the world where I, I know about, I mean, Azerbaijan just attacked Armenia. You know, you don't see much about that in, 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 in the U.S. newspapers. You know, we need to be paying attention and we need to be doing whatever we can to make things better. So that's the first thing. Um, I would say that, at least in my opinion, the war that Russia chose to prosecute in Ukraine is different in a couple of respects. I mean, first of all, Russia is a huge and global power, but the second is, and a nuclear power, but the second is that I think that while it is a war about Ukraine and Russia's desire to incorporate Ukraine because Ukraine doesn't really exist, uh, according to Putin, um, but it's also, it's, so it's a legacy issue for him in some ways, but it's also about the international global order. And, you know, some of these more localized uh, conflicts, I would, I would argue, um, are not necessarily on that scale. My own view is that Putin, uh, if he has not stopped in Ukraine, will keep on going. He has told us as much. And if you look at the history of what he's done, 2008 in Georgia, 2014 in Ukraine, now 22 in 2022 in Ukraine, I think we should take him at his word. We need to make sure as a global community that he stops and that the Ukrainians prevail. Because it's not only about, you know, Russia's historically expansionist uh, <laughs> desires, Putin's desires in that respect. It's also about, in my opinion, destroying the global order because that doesn't work for Putin. Um, following uh, the the rules that you, you know, countries are sovereign, that you uh, respect borders, that you don't make war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, doesn't work for Putin because he has an economy that doesn't work, a, 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 a political system that doesn't work. He has nothing to attract um, allies to him or populations to him. And so he needs to destroy what exists out there. Um, so that um, so that he is in a better position. And the thought that might would make right, which is what Putin and other autocrats want, is um, 
I think, uh, a very um, unnerving one for democracies around the world because the rules-based order, it is not perfect by a long shot, but nevertheless, it has ushered in um, a, you know, seven decades of unparalleled prosperity, security, and freedom for much of the world. And so I think we need to be sure to safeguard it. Maybe we need to provide some reforms. And I think the U.S. and NATO and other countries have certainly talked about the need to reform some of the international institutions. But um, to go along with what Putin wants, um, to have a world where people like Putin make the rules, I think would not serve the United States very well. And so I think that's why you're seeing this very sharp response. Thank you. So I'm going to turn to some of these excellent questions that have been coming in from the audience. And I'm going to start with one that um, may actually be a bit of a segue from the last, your last answer, which is um, with her recent passing. Um, could you talk a little bit about the legacy left by Secretary of State Madeleine Albright? Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously, it's, it's Secretary Albright was a pioneer in so many ways. You know, the first uh, first female secretary of state, you know, breaking that glass ceiling. I was in the Foreign Service at the time, but of course, very, very junior. So I didn't really, really know her. But but, you know, there's that line from Amanda Gorman, Gorman um, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. I never thought I was going to be secretary of state. But, you know, you can see somebody who looks like you and um, and she's the boss and she was the boss. Um, and, um, so that was hugely important. Um, and, you know, I also identified with her because she too, uh, well, she was a, an immigrant, a refugee actually from Eastern Europe. And she was such a strong voice for democracy, for human rights, because she knew what happens when you live under an autocracy and, and she was a strong voice for Ukraine. So I got to know her, I mean, very not 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 well, of course, but I got to know her a little bit uh, when she came to Ukraine when I was ambassador, and she was, you know, really kind and taking time to see me. I can tell you, it was not an easy job that I had, and you know, she provided advice and encouragement, you know, for me, and you know, you're, you're on the right path, <laughs> and and I really I really appreciated that, um, you know, it was. Uh, a little kindness um, from a world leader, basically, that um, that meant a lot to me. And I think, you know, listening to some of the other people out there who have been um, writing about her, I think that that conversation was repeated a hundred times, a thousand times over her career, where she helped people along the way. Uh, and, uh, and it mean, means a lot to me, and I think it means a lot to other people as well. And the last thing I would say, is I love the fact that she had that pin collection that she could, um, you know, communicate um, in ways, you know, she could say things that she couldn't say um, or she could communicate things that she couldn't actually verbalize. And it was all very clear and very classy. Signaling and international relations through brochures. Um, I, um, there is a two-part question, um, which is to ask when you were putting, writing your book, whether there was an experience or memory that was difficult to put on paper, and also since completing your book, is there something you wish you could have included that you weren't able to? Hmm. Um, well, I, I would say that, um, you know, since it's a memoir, 
it's retrospective. And so you're, um, you're thinking hard about all of the things you've done and trying to remember that was always a thing, reaching back to people. Is, is this correct? <laughs> um, and hang on one second. I'm getting, I, I really apologize. I'm getting a message that I need to plug in my computer. Technology. It is always our friend until it stops being our friend. It makes all things possible. I really apologize. I really miss the tech team. <laughs> um, so I've lost my train of thoughts. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have to say that, um, you know, the introspection and, you know, did I do the right thing here? Did we, the U.S., do the right thing here? So... Uh, one of the issues that, at least in the beginning of the uh, Russia's war against Ukraine, was out there front and center of, um, you know, what what role did the U.S. have in this? Was it the U.S.'s fault that Russia feels it's in the corner, et cetera? And, you know, I thought long and hard about that while I was writing the memoir. Now, I was not a policymaker at that time, but I was in in, in Russia in the early years, uh, and so I thought about that. You'll have to read, read the book to find out what I decided. <laughs> um, but um, so, you know, thinking about did we do the right thing and could we have done it better? And, um, you know, where are we now? Uh, those were all like kind of hard questions to grapple with. And then, of course, um, I, I did also write in some detail about uh, the impeachment inquiry, you know, my removal from Ukraine, um, sort of the long knives that were out after me, um, the impeachment inquiry, my decision to testify and so forth. Um, and that was, um, you know, reliving that, you know, 2019 was the worst year of my life. And it was, you know, both professionally and personally. My mother died during that time as well. And it was, um, you know, reliving all of that was not a happy process. And for those of you who have written books, you know, it's not just once, <laughs> you know, it's the constant editing um, and, um, you know, thinking about that and, and trying to be, you know, honest, but also, um, you know, choosing the right um, details and, and, and vignettes and so forth, because in any book, there's so much that is omitted. Um, that move the narrative along, but so that it's interesting to the reader, but also that, you know, make the points that you want to make and, and hopefully illuminate um, the story. So, yeah, I found it, I have to say, my hats off to people who write books, because um, I found it to be a very, very difficult process. So coming back um, to Ukraine and the war, um... One of the uh, one of our uh, audience members wants to know what concerns you the most as the war continues. What concerns me the most is that um, Putin could double down and use, you know, WND, either chem or, God forbid, a, a tactical nuke. Um, that's really the thing that concerns me the very most because um, I don't know. You know, there's obviously the death and destruction that would ensue, which would be, it's a huge tragedy. Um, but I don't know what would happen next. And that is a very sobering thing to contemplate. 
And relatedly, do you see the sanctions that the United States and its allies have imposed on Russia having a real impact on uh, Vladimir Putin's decision making? You know, it's, it's that's a hard question to answer. I think that sanctions, even, you know, the mega sanctions that we and other countries have imposed, they generally take a long time to take an effect. Um, Although I think we are seeing effects, you know, with long lines in the streets, the stock market being closed for, I think it was three weeks. And then the fourth week, it was, you know, I think the the Biden administration called it the Potemkin um, market because there were all sorts of rules. Foreigners couldn't do anything. Only a certain number of stocks were actually on uh, you know, allowed to trade. There were very, very strict restrictions. The ruble, as Biden sort of said the other day, is now rubble. You know, it's less worth less than a penny. I mean, there have been effects on the people of, of Russia. The question is, is that enough? And at what point is it enough to, ha- you know, play a role in Putin's decision making? And I don't think we're at that point yet. Although, as I said before, I certainly don't know what's in his head, um, and it's, you know, it's it's hard to predict. I think at this point. Can you talk a little bit about somebody, as somebody who ha- was um, doing the work of of America abroad over you know a few decades, but a few decades of tremendous technological change? How ha- yeah. how do you think technology has affected diplomacy, and do you think it's for the better or for the worse? Yeah, there are so many <laughs> aspects to that question. So I'll just um, take it as, um, you know, maybe from its lowest common denominator. So my very, very first tour was um, Mogadishu, Somalia, and it was so, so far away from Washington and, you know, my family in Connecticut. Um, This was, I was there in 1976, from 1976 to 1978, a long time ago. There was no internet there. We, I didn't even have a phone in my, uh, in my apartment. Uh, We used walkie talkies and radios. And um, I made, I think it was three phone calls back to the United States in the space of three and a half years. I communicated by letter and it took three months round trip for me to get, you know, for me to send a letter and for me to get the answer back. It was remote. (laughs) And so, you know, on a work level, we had, you know, cables going back and forth to Washington, but it was remote. um, And, um, you know, the ambassador, I was very, very junior, of course, but the ambassador had a lot of leeway in deciding things and moving things forward because Washington was so far away. But, you know, fast forward to today and, you know, you've got all sorts of communications, um, you know, on the personal side, but also on the work side. So that, you know, a huge part of my work was not only representing the U.S. to, you know, my last post, the U.S. to Ukraine, but it was also rushing back at the end of a long day and, you know, being on that local time in Ukraine, 10 p.m., 2 a.m., secure phone call with Washington, because, of course, Washington is still on uh, Washington's schedule. It was eight hours, sometimes seven hours um, uh, behind us. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm sure they cared, but, you know, they were working on their schedule. They needed me on 
the video conference. And, um, you know, I would have to rush back to the embassy to, to do that part of it. And so we jokingly call it, <laughs> not so affectionately, the 5,000 mile screwdriver where, um, you know, almost everything is, um, you know, decided, uh, well, worked with Washington, decided and approved. And so the leeway that I think when used to have in embassies um, is, is, is far less. And, you know, on the one hand, um, I can understand, especially in a uh, risky environment, uh, that that's, um, that if you're sitting in Washington, that's what you want to do. There's been constant, you know, both in the Trump administration and now in the Biden administration, we need to allow our foreign service constant talk about that we need to allow uh, our officers more leeway. We need to, uh, you know, assume more risk. We need to be more flexible. We need to be out there. And yet Washington, as far as I can see, is unwilling to assume that risk and allow people more leeway um, to do good work. Um, inevitably, there will be mistakes, but then you fix them. So, um, yeah. So that's probably not the answer you were expecting, because <laughs> there are so many aspects to that, but that's the one that came to mind immediately. You know, I think Hans Morgenthau lamented that the telephone uh, created too much uh, contact between, uh, you know, Washington <laughs> and the remote locations, and it was the death of diplomacy, and diplomats no longer truly represented the country. It might, might have been the telegram, but I think uh, I think it was late enough that it had to have been the telephone. But, you know, it's this, there is, uh, you know, there's just too much, too much connectivity, and now we have, we have even more. Um, I know we're running out of time. I want to ask you what advice you have for young diplomats, whether American or otherwise, but particularly those who don't look like diplomats traditionally have looked in whatever country they're in. Maybe it's the gender, maybe it's the color of their skin, whatever else it is. What, what is your recommendation for people who are breaking through into old boys clubs of diplomacy? Yeah. You know, it's it's always a challenge, um, but I think that you need to stand up for yourself. Um, I think you also uh, need need to do the work. Um, you know, you need to be um, a good officer uh, as as well, and I think you need to find allies, whether they are in. Um, affinity groups, uh, whether they are bosses, whether they are peers who do look like the standard, um, because there are allies everywhere. And just as countries are stronger when we work together, I think individuals are stronger when they work together and sort of create kind of the new normal. And we've made um, strides in that, but not nearly enough. And we lost a lot of people during the Trump years. We need to rebuild. And so since you gave such a succinct uh, answer to that question, there's another one that's come in from the audience, uh, which asks what the biggest change you saw over your diplomatic career was. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like the boiling the frog metaphor where, <laughs> you know, you're just in the pot and you don't notice as things change. Um, I guess... Um, how much smaller the world has become, how much more interconnected we are, and the impact that has not only on business, um, but on diplomatic relations, military relations, uh, on everything else. And 
I, you know, one of the things I, I worry about, and I know it's not just me, is that one of the results of Russia's war on aggression may be that some of those ties are lost um, and some of those um, commercial links um, may be lost and it will take a long, long time to, to rebuild them. And I think that would be, that would be a shame because, um, you know, people rail against globalization, but, you know, it's been around since the Vikings. I mean, it is just the natural order of things that people and countries want um want to um you know communicate and uh work together and um so and 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 we get huge benefits from that and so i i hope that we can move through this period which is a the most challenging period i've seen in my lifetime um i think it's a hinge moment and i think it's not going to uh, the way we grapple with this challenge from from Russia and perhaps other autocratic countries um, is not going to be over soon. Um, but I hope that as we deal with it um, and beyond, that we can recreate that global community. Thank you. I mean, I think that's such a great answer, and I think it's such a great note to end this conversation on. So I just want to thank you um, and... Um, Offer thanks on behalf of myself, but also on behalf of the Commonwealth Club to you, uh, Maria Ivanovich, uh, former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, and most recently author of the new book, Lessons from the Edge, which you, uh, viewers and listeners, uh, can pick up at your local bookstore. I'm going to put in the plug and suggest you pick it up at your local independent bookstore um, or order it off the internet from your local independent bookstore, but really buy it, however, or get it from the library, however you find it most accessible. Um, if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making in-person and virtual programming possible, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. Uh, and I am Olga Olaker, and this has been our conversation with Ambassador Marie Hivanovich. Thank you so much, and take care. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.